is Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Good morning. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We've been looking at the attributes of God this fall because, as we've been saying, there's nothing more practical in life than knowing who God is and how he works. It's always the case but it's really easy to forget what we know, especially if you live during a time in history when the prevailing culture and social structures don't support an accurate view of who God is, but they serve to undermine how you think about him, undermine how you relate to him. For instance, in our present moment, there are two underlying background beliefs, two assumptions that modern people make about the nature of reality that make it hard to remember what's really true of God. The first is a tendency to reduce God, to make him less than he is, to bring him down to our level, to domesticate him, if you will, to think of him as a super creature rather than the creator. And so then we have a tendency to treat him as a doting grandfather, someone who will just put up with anything you do because he's just happy that you made time to come see him. Or we cast him in the role of a cosmic therapist, someone who's interested in smoothing out all of the bumps in your life. Or we emphasize a personal relationship with him to such an extent that we lose a sense of awe, a sense of wonder at how immense he is, of how his existence is completely outside the universe. That's the first assumption that sits in the background of our thinking, to reduce God so that he's smaller than he is, so that he's a, a little bit more like us, a little less transcendent, a little more manageable. Second background belief moves in the opposite direction, and that one is to elevate ourselves, 
to think more highly of ourselves, primarily in the area of our goodness and morality, to think that on the whole, human beings are mostly pretty decent, that our problems from, come from the world around us, they don't really come from within us, and our tendency then is to think that we just need a little bit of help to get over these few remaining bumps in the road and then society is really just going to take off. Now, if you want to see this belief in action, just pay attention to the typical ways that we respond when someone confronts us. Pay attention to how easily we're offended by the suggestion that we might have been anything less than good. Or pay attention to how we will pick at the words that someone uses when they confront us, or we'll pick with their tone as a way of dismissing what they said. Or think about how easily we blame our poor response to being confronted on the other person. And we say that it's their fault that we didn't respond well. If they had just said this differently, if they had come at us a little bit differently, we, we, we'd have responded really well. Or you can think about how we don't listen to what someone says as much as we listen crafting our argument as to how we're going to respond or how we will revisit these conversations and we turn them over in our minds, rationalizing what we did, replaying the conversations in a way that justify ourselves. You look at all that and you think, well, why do we do that? It's because deep down, we think that we're really pretty decent people. We think very highly of ourselves, both individually and as a society. So at the same time that we bring God down, we elevate ourselves, and that's the world that you and I live in. Those are the background beliefs that are just out there in our world that influence how we approach life. And when you live in this world, it's very hard to remember who God is. And that's why it's essential in the current Western world that we double down on Scripture. We have to learn. We have to relearn. We have to remember who God is, and in light of who he is, to have a better sense of who we are so that we can then live well in the world. And so to that end, we're looking today at a passage that addresses both of those modern distortions. This is a passage that right-sizes both God and ourselves, and we're going to look at it today through five different lenses. We're going to consider it from the perspective of human arrogance, of divine holiness, of our uncleanness, of God's graciousness, and our service. So five categories for today, arrogance, holiness, uncleanness, graciousness, and service. And before I start, let me say something personal. This has been a really rich passage for me this week. I, I've read this passage, I've studied it, I've taught on it before, and yet this week somehow it's gotten a little bit more deep inside of me. And so it's informed how I've prayed for myself. It's informed how I've prayed for other people. It's been an important lens for me then to look through the world, look at the world through. Had a number of important means this week, including some at Presbytery. And this passage helped me interpret what I was seeing and then informed some of the things that I did, some of the things I didn't do. Personally, very challenging, humbling and super valuable in understanding the world around me and how I then have to live in this world. And my prayer is that it will be helpful then to all of us. So let me urge you today, please take good notes. Maybe you want to revisit them later this week in your time of study. If you do that, I, th I think it'll really pay off for you. So first this morning, arrogance. 
Isaiah begins verse 1 by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, which is a really odd way to start. If you read the history of the kings, the book of Kings, book of Chronicles, most of the dates there are based on the year that a certain king held power. So in this instance, what you would expect Isaiah to say is, in the first year of King Jotham, that was Uzziah's son, in the first year of King Jotham, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. That's what you expect. But Isaiah does not anchor his experience in Jotham's reign. Instead, he looks back to Uzziah. And not something in Uzziah's life, but he looks to his death. Now, why is that? Well, what do we know about his death? He died, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us, alienated. He was separated both from Israel, from the people of God, and from God. For roughly the last 10 years of his life or so, he had some kind of skin disease, something that Scripture calls leprosy. And leprosy then probably means something different than what we mean by Hansen's disease now, but it was still very destructive personally, highly contagious, and so the sufferer could not have contact with other people. They would have to live apart from the community, which meant also that they could not go then into the temple, so they could not meet with God. That was Uzziah's condition, cut off from contact with people and with God. Now, how did Uzziah contract the skin disease? If you read through 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you learn that in his youth he sought God and that God gave him success, that Israel prospered, that they grew strong militarily and did very well economically. Chapter 26, verse 16, however, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah was the king, but that didn't mean that he could then approach God any way that he wanted. Instead, God had said there has to be a mediator between himself and his people. And so God appointed priests to offer incense before him on behalf of the people, pointing forward to Christ, obviously. Uzziah decided that he was going to offer his own incense anyway. While he's there in the temple offering incense, the priests come in and they challenge him. They say, this is not lawful for you. And instead of backing down, Uzziah got angry. And it's in that moment when he refused to be rebuked for his arrogance that leprosy broke out on his forehead. At which point he's only too glad to be rushed out of the temple because verse 20, the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. Uzziah became arrogant, thought it was no big deal to walk in on God, that he could adequately represent himself. He could ignore God's instructions, resist God's rebuke through his priests, and that he'd be fine. That he didn't need a mediator, someone to offer incense on his behalf, that he was good enough to do that for himself. He had what? He had an elevated impression of himself. It was an impression that wasn't neutral. It was a belief about himself that replaced God's belief about himself. And Uzziah's belief drove him to sin in the temple. 
But the problem didn't start with what he did. It's not with the offering the incense. It came from within. In the language of the Old Testament, Uzziah was unclean on the inside. And in a moment of judgment, God allowed what was unseen, his spiritual uncleanness, to be seen in his physical skin disease. It's a very odd picture for us. But it's a picture that all of Israel would have understood immediately. God allowed his internal uncleanness in that moment to manifest itself in such a way that no one could deny it, including Uzziah. And so what was true but hidden about Uzziah, his spiritual defilement, his internal uncleanness, was suddenly obvious. And so he lived out the rest of his life under the ongoing divine displeasure of God. He was cut off from the people of God, cut off from God himself. And Isaiah knew all this. Isaiah was a literary person. That's clear. You read the 66 chapters of his book in the Old Testament, and it's clear he's literary. But in a small note there in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 22, we learn that Isaiah had also written an entire biography of King Uzziah. It's a book that we no longer have. But this little note in Chronicles tells us that Isaiah knew all of the details of Uzziah's life. And out of everything that he could have focused on, Isaiah draws our attention to this detail, to Uzziah's death, and by implication then to all of the events leading up to his death. And that's what Isaiah then associates with the temple. He says, when I think about temple, I think about human arrogance and I think about judgment. And it's an association that then sets the context for what Isaiah experiences in that same temple. It's point one, human arrogance. Point two, divine holiness. Verse one again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Some of us are arrogant like Uzziah. We think that we belong in God's presence that we can do whatever we like, we can't imagine it being any other way. Others of us are not arrogant. Our problem is that we don't expect anything from being in God's presence. We come to church, we certainly don't expect to meet God, to see Him. Someone once said, I think it was Jack Miller, that quote, Isaiah was going to temple, just as he had a thousand times before, and the last person he expected to show up was God, unquote. And think about yourself this morning. Is that true of you? I know it's often way too true of me. We talk about God easily enough, about who he is, about what he's like. We sing praise songs to him. We pray to him. Did all of that this morning. But we don't really expect to meet him in any real way. And that seems to be Isaiah's experience here. It rocks his world when he comes face to face with God. Now, why is that? It's because of what he saw in that moment that he was not expecting. Three things, quickly. He saw that God was bigger than he had imagined, that God was completely other than anything he had ever encountered, and that God was holy. Take them one at a time. First, God is bigger. Isaiah doesn't describe God himself, but he describes things about God. 
He says that the train of his robe, and that's probably better translated as the note in the ESV says, the hem of his robe. He says the hem of his robe is so big that it fills the temple, this enormous building, which then makes you ask, if the hem fills the temple, how big is the robe? And if this robe is that large, how big is the throne on which God is sitting with the robe? And if the throne is that big, how much bigger is God? You start to get these economies of scale that make you realize God is a whole lot bigger than you and I typically imagine him to be. Or as verse 3 puts it, the whole earth is full of his glory. It's another way of saying that his glory fills the known world, the known universe. That he is so big that the earth doesn't contain him. It can't. That the world is not big enough to be a home to him because he's larger than anything that you can imagine. And so you can't get around him. You can't get past him. You can't get beyond him. You can never encounter any part of existence without encountering him. Which means then you can't reduce him down to something that you can then wrap your mind around because he doesn't fit into any of the categories that your mind is able to construct. He's first, immense. Second, he's completely other. He's distinct from all of creation. You think about the seraphim here. Their name literally means the burning ones. These burning ones, these glorious angelic beings, do what in the presence of God? They cover their faces. They've never sinned, but they can't approach God. They can't be in his presence without some kind of covering. They don't approach God as equals, as beings who deserve to be in his presence. They don't believe that it's theirs to know him beyond what he reveals about himself, and so they cover what? They cover their eyes, not their ears. They can hear from him, hear what he wants them to know about him, but they cannot independently see into his nature. They can receive from him, but they can't penetrate him, can't investigate what he doesn't show them. Which tells you what? They're not like him. They're not on the same plane as he is. There's this uncrossable gulf between them and him. He's not kind of like them, but just a little bit bigger. He's completely other than they are. Isaiah is seeing first that God is bigger than you can imagine. Second, that he's completely different from all else in creation. And he sees thirdly that he's holy. And not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. Now, we've talked about this before, that when Scripture wants to emphasize something, when it wants to underline something or italicize it or put it in bold so that it stands out, that what Scripture does is it repeats itself twice, says the same thing in order to make sure that you really get it. Here, Scripture goes one better and says something three times, that God is holy, holy, holy. Paul Tripp wrote a book on the doctrines of God and why they make a difference to our lives. It's a book called, Do You Believe? And in that book, he writes two chapters on each doctrine. The first chapter briefly explains the doctrine in ways that make sense, and then the second chapter 
shows how that doctrine then applies to life. Highly readable, very helpful. This is another one of the books that I read when, on my Sabbath because you can read a chapter, you can put it down, and, and you can just sort of dwell on that. You don't, it's, it's not continuous, contiguous. Highly recommended, Do You Believe by Paul Tripp. In the chapter on holiness, he says something along these lines. Imagine that I went to a ball game and saw a guy there who was just enormous. And I wanted to get across his size to you, so I said, this guy was huge, huge, huge. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say he's not just big. <laughs> I'm saying he's beyond the biggest person that you've ever imagined seeing. He's massive. So when the seraphs call out that God is holy, 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 they're saying he's holy in ways that you've never imagined, that he's holy in ways that you can't imagine, that his holiness is outside of anything that you've ever encountered here in this world, that his moral excellence, his moral purity, his moral superiority, like his size, is also categorically distinct. He's in a world all by himself. And this is where I'm frustrated with me this morning. Because I don't have the words to bring you and me into that experience. All of the words that you and I have come from within this world. While God's moral purity is above and outside this world. Because he is holy, holy, holy. Which means that if you and I gaze at him, if we study his holiness, we meditate on it forever, for eternity, <laughs> we're still going to come up short just trying to describe it. That reality frustrates all of my attempts to describe him and his holiness this morning. But there's something else that undermines my ability to do that. And it's that I've not gazed or studied his holiness in ways that I could have, in ways that I should have. And so my failure with you this morning to bring us all into a sense of his holiness is partly because I'm a created being and partly because I'm fallen. I'm created and I'm fallen. I'm unholy in a way that I shouldn't be. And so I've been okay, like Isaiah, with nonchalantly wandering into the presence of the three times holy one, while angelic beings of power and glory cover their faces before him. King Uzziah treated God with contempt. Isaiah treated him casually. Both of those attitudes are dangerous in the presence of a holy God. Uzziah understood that danger when he was judged. Isaiah also understood it and judged himself. That brings us to point three, our uncleanness. Who's Isaiah? He's a literary genius. We still read and study him today, nearly 3,000 years later. He's also a person of influence. According to the rabbinic tradition, he was related to the royal family. If you read scripture, you realize that he had ready access to the king, that his advice and counsel were sought out by the king, received by the king. He was an insider. He was an elite and religious, welcome in the temple. That was all true 
while he was completely unaware of his true condition. But as soon as he sees God, he sees himself. And he sees what he hadn't seen before. And he immediately, in that moment, calls down a curse on himself. Verse 5, woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. That's, that's a curse. It's a malediction, a bad word that he, the future prophet of God, pronounces on himself. This is a curse that was normally used for God's enemies. Woe is me. He pronounces woe on himself. He says, I'm lost. Other translations, I'm undone. I'm ruined. Woe to me. There's no hope. I'm destroyed. He's absolutely aware of how hopeless the situation is. So aware, he doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He realizes there would be no point to doing so. He has no basis for asking. The gulf that is separating him and God is just too big. What is he? He's no longer casual. He's very much aware of what it means to stand in the presence of God's superior holiness when you're not. He now knows that he's not. Verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips. He just got insight into himself. And the best word that he can use to sum himself up is to say that he too is unclean. Just had a revelation. He says, it's not just Uzziah who's unclean, but I am. Uzziah and I express it differently, but we've got the same problem. We're both unclean. Now make sure you hear what he's say, saying here. He doesn't say, I've got a little problem with my mouth. Sometimes I slip up, I say some bad words, tell some off-color off jokes. Doesn't say that. That's not what it means to have unclean lips, that he needs to clean his act up a little bit, be a little more careful with his vocabulary choice. Having unclean lips means that the very vehicle through which he expresses himself is distorted. The vehicle of his expression is unclean, which means that none of what he says is okay, that everything is twisted, everything is distorted. It's when you learn here that uncleanness is not about a particular set of actions, a particular set of words, a couple of things that are off, but that, you know, they're aberrations to an otherwise pretty decent person. You know, kind of like a couple bad spots on an apple. You just sort of cut those off and the rest of the apple is fine. Uncleanness isn't like that. Uncleanness is something that spreads throughout the entire apple so that none of it is any good. It's a condition then that impacts everything that you are. It's the inner unseen reality that guides all of what comes out of you, all of what you say and do. And so when Isaiah confesses that he has unclean lips, what he's saying is that everything that you hear him say is tainted. Everything is rotten. That in some way, it's all unclean. That in some way, when he speaks, his words do not express anything 
that can stand in the presence of a holy God. That when he talks about life, whether he's talking high-level philosophy or he's talking about the details of running a household, getting off to work, that when he talks about life, the goals of life, the way you live life, what life is all about, that when he speaks, he does not speak like God speaks. But instead, he speaks like God doesn't. And so his words about any part of life don't point people in some way to this incredible God so that you can see his glory that fills the earth or you can see how it fills the earth. But that when Isaiah speaks, this glorious God and everything that he does is reduced in people's minds or just goes unnoticed so that people don't see God in all of his greatness and his holiness. Because when Isaiah speaks, he uses words to paint a picture of reality that's different. Different from how this triple holy, majestic God sees himself or sees the world. Isaiah speaks then in a way that is unclean, unholy, when you compare it to a holy God. And in that sense, holiness, unholiness, cleanness, uncleanness, it's not about the individual words you use. It's about how you use the words you use. It's about what you use the words for, what you call attention to with them, what you ignore with them. That's what it means to have unclean lips. And notice here how Isaiah is aware that he's responsible for his own lips. That uncleanness is not something that you catch from other people. It's not something that someone taught him so that they are now responsible for how he talks. Yes, other people might show you how to express your uncleanness a little bit better. But no one creates it for you. It's his lips that are unclean. Not something that you catch from others. Not something that you do. It's something that you are. Something that goes to the essence of who you are that then dictates how you live in this world. And when that's the case, you're lost. <laughs> you can't be trusted to be around other people. You certainly can't enter into God's presence. Not because of a handful of bad things that you've done or said, but because of something in you that taints everything that you say or do that will keep on tainting it in the future so that you keep communicating a reality other than the one that the threefold holy one rules over. And I think the worst part of all of this is that up until this moment, Isaiah had no clue. He didn't walk around thinking that his words distorted reality for other people. He didn't walk around thinking that like Uzziah, there was this invisible, very real uncleanness inside of him, guiding him, speaking through him. He had no idea. Which tells you something else about the nature of uncleanness, that we're mostly unaware of it. That most of us, that what we do, it, it doesn't strike us as tainted. That we think of ourselves as really okay. And that's what's frightening to think about the, with this passage. King Uzziah is frightening to think about. Why? What, what was he doing? He's offering incense to whom? To the Lord. Uzziah is not setting up idols on the mountaintops, creating a new religion. 
He's not bowing down to the stars. He's not sacrificing his child to some pagan war god for victory. He's in the temple. Worshipping God, he thought. And his religious activity is unholy. Exposing his inner uncleanness, demoting God, promoting himself. And Isaiah says he just realized that he does exactly the same thing. That he came to the temple, came to worship like he has before. Came to be religious, came to say religious things with unclean lips. And it's worse, he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He has been at home among an unclean people. Fit right in with everyone else. Hadn't tried to separate himself from other unclean people. Hadn't tried to move toward God's holiness, away from their uncleanness. But that instead, he was no different at home among a people of unclean lips. And he had no idea that that was true until now. But that means he's in trouble. Because he's standing where Uzziah stood, with Uzziah's condition, which means that he deserves Uzziah's consequences to have his uncleanness exposed and then to be forever alienated from God and his people. Isaiah just discovered that there's not merely a gap because he's finite from an infinite God, but that there's a greater separation between him and God. There's this moral chasm that he can never cross, and so he simply says, I'm lost. <laughs> That's it. Now that I see God, I also see the reality of who I am, and that means there's no hope for me. I'm lost. Have you ever had a moment like that? I sincerely hope so. Because if you have, it means that God is on the move in your life. Just like he was in Isaiah's. One of the clearest signs that God is active in your life is that he helps you see reality more clearly. That he lets you catch a glimpse of the high and holy one seated on his throne. A glimpse that elevates God back to his place. Lets you see where he's always been. And lets you see yourself more clearly in the light of his holiness. If that's you this morning, if you're going through a season where you are very aware now of what you're not, and that season is unusual for you, if you normally have a pretty high opinion of yourself, but for some reason you just keep seeing how far short you're falling all the time, man, get excited. God is up to something special, and it's not to crush you. He wants to do something amazing in your life. Because it's at that moment, point four, where God's graciousness now takes center stage. And it takes center stage much more so than Isaiah's uncleanness has. Truthfully, God's graciousness has been there all along. Isaiah did not initiate this revelation. God did. He chose to give Isaiah a glimpse of the reality, the realities that Isaiah was clueless about. Gave Isaiah a true picture of just how high and holy he is. Let Isaiah hear what the angelic beings already knew to be true. 
made it possible for Isaiah to open his eyes to the truth of who he is. God initiated all of that for Isaiah's sake, took the first step. And he let Isaiah know that he was willing to make his own world weird in order to accommodate his people, to make room for Isaiah. Think again about what happens next, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He took it from where? From the altar. Think about that. The high and holy one has an altar in his living room. Our three times holy God has created a house for himself, a place for his throne that comes with an altar. And it's an altar that's not there for him. Think about your own house. Maybe you've done an addition, a remodeling. Don't you put things there for yourself? Sure, you hope that they'll hold their value when you sell, but that jacuzzi, <laughs> it's for you. That game room is for you. That remodeling, that addition, that's for you. The color on, that you put on the walls, that's for you. God puts something in his house that is not for him. Something that he doesn't need. But it's something that's there for the people who come to see him. It's so that they can come see him. Our God is holy. His people are unclean. And he wants those who are unclean to enter into his holy presence. And so he puts an altar there for us because he wants us and he wants us to be with him. And remember again, Isaiah doesn't ask for this help. He sees the gulf that separates him and God. He doesn't think it can be crossed. God initiates crossing it. God anticipates having to cross it by putting the altar where it is and by having a sacrifice already on it. Notice here, Isaiah doesn't bring his own sacrifice. God himself provides one for Isaiah. Any animal that Isaiah could have brought would never be enough to take away sin. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us that there were animal sacrifices that had to keep being offered year after year after year. But God provides a sacrifice for Isaiah that does so much more than any animal sacrifice could. Look again at verse 7. The seraph takes a coal from the altar, touches the coal to Isaiah's mouth, and tells him, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Coal from the sacrifice does two things. It atones for his sin, for the individual, particular things that he's done wrong. And it takes away his guilt. It removes the inner reality of his unclean, unholy nature. Fire of the coal does not destroy his lips. It removes his guilt that caused his lips to sin. And it does so by paying for his uncleanness. That's what atonement means. Atonement means that there was a certain price that had to be paid for sin and guilt. And it's a price that was actually paid. That's at the heart of what this sacrifice in God's throne room does. It absorbs all of the burning wrath of God, 
God's holiness against anything that transgresses his holiness without destroying the transgressor. So that there's no more guilt now for you because the guilt has been transferred to the sacrifice. So that what was once yours, your guilt and sin, now belongs to the sacrifice, which has absorbed God's judgment against you. And yet there's something odd here. Why does the seraph use tongs to take a coal? It's not because the coal is hot. The seraph is one of the burning ones. It's not because the coal is hot, but because it's holy. And yet it touches Isaiah and it doesn't hurt him. It cleanses him. Its holiness takes away his uncleanness. Its holiness is contagious. And that's unusual. You read the Old Testament and you realize that clean and unclean go the other way. That it's uncleanness that is catching. That impurity destroys purity. So that when something that's unclean touches something that is clean... The clean becomes unclean. Its purity is ruined by what's impure. That's why Uzziah spends the rest of his life in a separate house, cut off from others so that his physical uncleanness doesn't make anyone else unclean. It was a physical picture that God gave in the Old Testament to help us understand what's true spiritually. That what is unholy always contaminates what is holy. But not here. Not in the presence of a holy God. Here, what is holy absorbs uncleanness without harming the unclean person. It leaves behind only purity. That's what makes Jesus so special when he cleansed people. Jesus was not afraid to touch lepers. He wasn't afraid that somehow they would make him unclean, that he would contract their uncleanness. Instead, when he touched them, he healed them. His wholeness was so strong that it made others whole. Cleanness went out from him that overpowered their uncleanness. Jesus is the clean that makes the unclean clean. And again, it's a picture that shows what he does spiritually. That it's in his death and resurrection, his sacrifice for the sins of his people, his sacrifice that he as God provided for his people, that cleanses us from guilt, that lets us stand now in the presence of a holy God and joyfully serve him in whatever he's doing. That's what happens when the coal touches Isaiah's mouth, and its effect is immediate. For the first time since he entered the temple, Isaiah hears the voice of God. Up till now, he's only seen God. Now he hears God. And when God speaks, Isaiah does not hear a word of judgment, of alienation. But Isaiah hears a word of friendship, a word of partnership. God asks, verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God's looking for people to join him in what he's doing. And God immediately makes that offer to Isaiah now that his guilt and sin are paid for. What's that tell you? His sin and his guilt are gone, truly gone, just like the seraph said. Nothing now can get in the way between Isaiah 
and this three times holy God. Nothing can get in between them because this sacrifice that God supplies in his house for his people has taken it all away and Isaiah knows it, point five. And so he jumps at the chance to partner with God, to serve him. Because now not only is he free to hear God, he's free to speak to God. And he volunteers to go. God asks, verse 8, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. No gap between redemption and sending. God takes away Isaiah's guilt and wants others to know that he'll do the same. And so he asks a formerly unclean person to go to tell people what he's up to. And think about what it is that qualifies Isaiah to go. <laughs> it's not because he spent years at seminary, didn't spend a long time studying apologetics, does not have extensive training in how to lead a Bible study. What qualifies him is that he was unclean, and he knew it, and then now knows that he's clean because of what God has done for him. That's it. That's what qualifies him. Now he can go. He has firsthand experience of what human beings need from God. Firsthand experience that there, of knowing there's no way to cross that chasm. Firsthand experience that God found a way to cross it for us. So now he can go. Now he wants to go. No one has to compel him. No one has to make him sign up to do something he doesn't want to do. No one has to work hard to convince him that he really should want to do this. Instead, you can't hold him back. He's eager to go, wants to go, wants to serve with this amazing God who wants him. If you don't have that same attitude, if you're not serving at all, you're just consuming getting all of the benefits from the people of God that you can, if you're not serving at all, or if you're not serving with joy, but you feel like it's a burden, like it's something that you have to do or you just feel bad or, or that other people will make you feel bad, then what you need is a fresh experience of seeing your need, seeing God's provision. Because if you don't have that fresh experience, if you simply serve out of duty, you serve because you're supposed to, then not only will you hate serving, at some point come to resent it, but you'll also discover that it will supercharge those background beliefs. That you will slowly start to think more highly of yourself. That you will start to look down on people who aren't serving. And you'll start to feel superior to them. You will elevate yourself. And you'll start to reduce God. You'll subtly start to think that, you know what, he, he owes me for all that I'm doing. I know several people. They were very passionate to serve the Lord. And then they ran into bumps in their lives. They got things in life that they didn't want. They didn't get the things that they did want. And they turned around, looked at God and said, really? This is it? I did all that for you and this is what you gave me? You gave me a crappy job, a spouse who doesn't love me. Physical condition means I can't enjoy life. This is why I served you. This is not what I signed up for. What's their thinking show? That they thought God was smaller. 
that they thought God was supposed to be their servant to give them what they wanted out of life, that they would put their time in and he would respond. That is not a heart that has seen God's holiness or your own uncleanness and has been amazed that he could actually really want you <laughs> and pay to have you. Serve out of duty because you're supposed to. It will all go sideways. The antidote to both arrogance or casualness toward God, toward the things of God, is the gospel. It's to see his holiness, to feel your uncleanness, and to experience his graciousness. Ask God for those things. He wants to reveal them to you. You're probably not going to get the same experience that Isaiah got. But this chapter is here to tell you this is what God wants his people to understand at a deep level. Ask him for this, for a fresh awareness. And when you have that, no one's going to be able to hold you back. You will serve gladly, wanting everybody to know about this incredible God. Why don't I give you just a few minutes to, to talk to him? And then I'll close this in prayer and we'll go to our final song. joyful hearts, not because we have to. In Jesus' name.